RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. We found some statistics through our our research and, and, and one of them that was significant was that the state of Florida in 2019 had about 8% of all of the homeowners claims nationwide, but we had 76% of all of the litigation nationwide. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner in the law firm RPC, and in each episode, I'm joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week, our guest is David Altmaier, and our topic is insurance in the Sunshine State of Florida. David started out as a math teacher before joining an insurance agency in Tallahassee, the state capital of Florida. However, in 2008, he moved from there to the Florida Office of Insurance Regulation. And once there, he worked his way up over the next eight years from insurance examiner number two to chief analyst to director to deputy commissioner. And then in 2016, he became commissioner of insurance, a post he held for almost seven years. But in March 2023, he left that role. And alongside being a non-executive director of Aspen Insurance Group, he is now also a consultant and lobbyist for the Southern Group. Given his experience, there can be few people better placed to discuss the state of insurance in the state of Florida, which is what we're going to discuss today. So David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Peter. I'm really glad to be here. As mentioned, you started out as a teacher. So what was it that caused you to change direction towards insurance? It's a, it's a fun story. I'll, I'll share the brief version. But I actually grew up in the state of Kentucky and became a high school math teacher in Kentucky and a track coach, actually. And then in 2006, I relocated to Florida a little bit unexpectedly. But I got to Tallahassee and nobody in Tallahassee at the time needed a math teacher or a track coach. And so I had to look for something else to do and wasn't exactly sure what that was going to be. And one day, as part of the the move, I went into a Florida insurance office to switch our insurance policies from Kentucky to Florida. And throughout that conversation, I ended up successfully switching my insurance policies, but also getting a shop interview with <laughs> the uh, insurance agency. So again, it was it was almost pure happenstance, but I spent two years in the insurance agency. And it was just really, really incredible experience. So today we're going to be discussing insurance in Florida, uh, because I don't think it's an overstatement to say that uh, the eyes of the insurance world are currently on Florida. As has been well documented, insurance premiums or rates have been increasing dramatically in recent years. And the insurance rates in Florida are now three times the national average in the rest of the US. So we're going to be looking at the causes of that, and in particular, whether the increase in premiums is due to an increase in hurricanes and floods, and therefore, more widely, to climate change, or whether the increase in rates is perhaps a little bit more complex than that. And spoiler alert, it is more complex than that. But first, I just want to set the scene because Florida is the sunshine state, home of Disney World, the Kennedy Space Center, the Everglades, and more specifically, the Florida scrub jay, a bird that can only be found in Florida. So, David, please 
could you give us a bit more information about Florida, uh, its population and such like, and kind of from an insurance perspective, uh, how many people live near the coast and are therefore susceptible to hurricanes and storm surges? So we've got about 20 million people that call Florida home, and we've got approximately um, 7.3 million housing units um, throughout the state. We do have a federal agency. I'm not sure if your listeners are familiar with NOAA or not. It's the National Oceanic Atmospheric Agency. But they have done a little bit of study. And so they say that of the approximately 20 million people that live in Florida, approximately 15 of them live in what they refer to as a, as a coastal area. And so that's, you know, 75% or more of the population is, is actually coastal. And, and in my opinion, where it becomes a, a really major issue is with flood insurance. And in the U.S., flood insurance is commonly not covered by your standard homeowner's insurance policy. And so we have so many people, not just in Florida, but all throughout the United States that are told through the home buying process that they're not in a flood zone. The reality is, is that everybody is in a flood zone and some people just are in a lower risk flood zone than others. And so in Florida, as well as many, many other states, we've got a pretty significant protection gap in the flood insurance space because some of those individuals that are in lower risk flood zones don't buy flood insurance. And it becomes pretty heartbreaking to see after catastrophes what the impact to those individuals are. And, and Florida, the whole is very flat as well, isn't it? The highest point is only, was it 130 meters or feet or something like that? It's, it's very, very low. Very flat. The whole state is very flat. So I grew up as a runner. And so when I moved to Tallahassee, it was a little bit of a, of a blessing that I didn't have to run up so many <laughs> hills anymore. So a little bit, little bit flatter and more relaxing runs down here. And um, we've already talked about kind of catastrophes that hit uh, Florida and, and in particular sort of hurricanes and the flooding that, that goes with that. And Florida has, you know, 1,350 miles of coastline if one ignores all the various islands. So kind of talk us through the Floridian experience of hurricanes over recent years, their frequency, their severity, and, and I suppose on a purely personal level, have you had personal experience of being hit by a hurricane? So starting with my personal experience there, I've had two close calls, but to say that I've had personal experience with a hurricane would be a stretch. The worst that I've had to experience is in several days without power, which is an inconvenience to be sure. But when you look at what some others have experienced in their own hurricanes, then, you know, I feel pretty fortunate. But you're right. We've had, you know, our probably more than our fair share of, of hurricanes, although the state of Louisiana might submit that they've had more than their fair share um, as they've taken quite a few hits here lately. But we had, it's interesting because Florida had about 10 years of no hurricane activity, stretching from, probably from 2006 to 2016, no landfalling hurricanes, which is which was a historic uh, anomaly. And then, of course, 2016, we started with, with Hurricane Hermine, which was just a cap one storm that you know, it was a, a pretty good reminder for the entire state that, hey, just because it's been 10 years doesn't mean it's going to be another 10 years. But but then after that, we ended up with a slew of hurricanes that were pretty significant. We had Hurricane Matthew in 2017, Irma in 18, Michael in 19. We got a little bit of a reprieve, um, but then we had Ian in, in 21, uh, which was really significant. 
and then Adalia a few weeks ago. And, and Adalia wasn't quite as bad as as its predecessors, but each of those storms from Irma through Ian were Cat 4 or Cat 5 hurricanes. Um, Michael and Ian impacted sort of some really kind of concentrated areas. Michael, as I mentioned, hit Panama City and, and Ian hit the Fort Myers area. And so those two regions took the majority of the hit. But Matthew and Irma I, uh, impacted the entire state. Now, I want to say that Irma, I'll have to double check myself on this, but we have 67 counties in the state of Florida and I think Hurricane Irma generated at least one claim in every single county in, in the state. Wow. So going back to your question about who, who all lives in a coastal area, uh, that's Everyone. a really good example <laughs> of why we usually say everybody yeah. in the state of Florida should think of themselves as, as, as coastal. Um, but if you, you know, if you, if you look at some of the prognosis from many of the modeling firms and other research associations, you know, I think, I think this is going to be more of a normal occurrence is the is the severity of these things and possibly even even the frequency and and how has this exposure to hurricanes affected insurance losses in recent years it's had a pretty major impact and you know we've got this would be a good time you know everybody commonly looks at florida and says you know hurricanes are your major risk and they're right but we have exacerbated that risk over the past 10 or so years with a significant amounts of, you know, what the industry jargonly calls social inflation. And, and I would just kind of call it excessive litigation. And I'll share with you, you know, a couple of quotes that I heard from reinsurance companies. And I think most of your listeners will probably appreciate that with our domestic industry, starting in 2004 and five, which were, you know, 2004, 2005, we had a total of eight major storms that impacted the state. So, a lot of your major carriers pulled out in the state, and we ended up with with about you know sixty or so uh, domestic companies, Florida domestic companies that started here and were not capitalized as well as some of the other carriers were, and so they were heavily heavily reliant on reinsurers. And so, as 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 our state's impacted by catastrophes, you know the biggest issue for us is. Are the reinsurance companies going to lose interest in the state of Florida? Because once they stop deploying their reinsurance capital in our state, we're going to have major problems in, in, in having a sustainable insurance market. So most of the time, the reinsurers will say, listen, we don't mind paying hurricane losses. That's why we're here. We are in the, we are in the catastrophe business. And as long as we can model the losses and as long as we can get relatively close to predicting what those losses might be, we're going to be in the state. But when you introduce this excessive litigation, the reinsurer started to say, we can't actually predict this anymore because we don't know how many claims are going to be reopened by public adjusters. We don't know how many claims are going to be litigated, but we don't know when claims are even going to come in. Florida used to have a three-year window where you could file a hurricane claim and you would see attorney solicitations about two years and six months after a hurricane that said, hey, make sure to file your hurricane claim. And so companies were getting hurricane claims as long as three years after the event. And so it was significant from the reinsurance um, standpoint. I heard two, um, two comments from reinsurers that really kind of hit home for me. One reinsurer told me that the reserve development on Hurricane Irma was so bad that it appeared that Hurricane Irma hit the state three years in a row. 
And Irma was a pretty major event. So when a reinsurer has that kind of experience, they're going to look at it and say, well, wait a minute, maybe we can't predict these storms as well as we think we could. And that's going to be a problem when we start to think about how much capacity to put in the state. And in the second quote, somebody told me that Hurricane Irma was their largest cat loss in 2000, largest global cat loss in 2019. And that's significant, of course, because Irma hits um, about two years before that. Um, <laughs> so even two years later, it's ranking as one of the largest local catastrophe losses. Wow. Um, and when we looked at that, we asked ourselves, is the problem that we can't predict the severity of the storms anymore? Or is the problem that we have a lot of man-made interference that's causing those models' outputs to not keep up with, um, with, with what the modeling technology is? We found some statistics through our, our research, and, and, and one of them that was significant was that the state of Florida in 2019 had about 8% of all of the homeowners' claims nationwide, but we had 76% of all of the litigation nationwide. And a litigated claim, according to our research, tends to be about three times more expensive than a non-litigated claim. And so suddenly, we're not really looking at catastrophe risk. We're looking at litigation risk and, and, and what to do about that. And so I think when we look at the risks facing the state of Florida, I think that was top of mind as we tried to navigate the intricacies of, of, of the market. Yeah, I, I heard that stat as I was doing my research. So kind of let, let's repeat it again so that it doesn't get lost in, in, the, in the general discussion, because it is a, it's, it's remarkable. I mean... Florida, what you're saying is Florida has 8% of all homeowner claims, but 76% of all the litigation. I mean, that's, that's, that's extraordinary. It really is. And, you know, we worked very hard with the Florida legislature for a number of different years. The plaintiff's bar in Florida is, is very persuasive and has a lot of input into that process. We're having a real difficult time trying to convince the legislature of, of what we were seeing. And it was that statistic that was really a game changer for us. And, and even the staunchest detractors of what we're trying to do, when they heard that statistic, you could kind of see their proverbial jaw drop a little bit. And are really, are, are you sure? Is this right? <laughs> and, and we were able to say, we, we vetted that stat quite, it was so extraordinary that we, I went back to my team and I said, listen, we, we have to be able this to justify to be, this. <laughs> this has to be right. We this this is so extraordinary that we have to go back and absolutely make sure that our math is correct here. We were able to do that, and so that's when we really started to make some progress on the tort reform um, in our state, which I think is going to have a, a pretty meaningful impact. We'll, we'll come on to that in, in just a moment, actually. But just uh, my understanding is that kind of eight insurers is that right have become insolvent in mm-hmm. in recent years because of hurricane losses and because of this additional litigation cost that you're talking about, social inflation, and average premiums in Florida are now triple the national average. So, I mean, this is an unsustainable situation, isn't it? If it was left untouched, it would be unsustainable. I think so. If left untouched, I think it would have been unsustainable from two different perspectives. And the one that's closest to everybody, including the members of the Florida legislature, is, is the rate aspect of things. And you know, members of the legislature are starting to hear from their constituents that, hey, if I have to pay this much in homeowners insurance, I'm just going to have to leave the state because I can't afford it. And, and obviously, that's not what Florida wants to see. They want to see affordable insurance rates. So, so that's, that's certainly an issue. And we were approving, I mentioned how challenging this was as the insurance commissioner. 
uh, we were approving rate increases that were just astronomical. And on, on an individual policy level, you might see rate increases as much as 130 to 140% year over year. But the insolvencies were a major problem also. And the the alarming part about the insolvencies is that, you know, when you have a hurricane, you would kind of expect within a couple of weeks for companies to be able to say, we can pay for it or we can't pay for it. But because of the reserve development that we were seeing, you know, a, a lot of that was a kind of a slow burn. You know, you get two or three years after an event and a company that we thought was fine would come and say, our reserves have developed so adversely that we blew through our reinsurance tower and, and now we can't afford um, to stay solvent. So availability of insurance became a huge issue. And of course, the affordability even more so. And I mentioned earlier that the that the eyes of the insurance world are, are on Florida because lots of people are, are seeing what is happening in Florida as a microcosm of of what might happen in other places because of climate change. Now you've already touched upon the fact that it's it's not a simple one answer situation. It's you know it's the, the increasing litigation, uh, social inflation as well. But but uh, I mean, you know, is it right to say that? Yeah, you know, the climate change is, is what's driving this ultimately, and therefore the position is going to get worse before it get well. It's going to get worse. It's it's not going to get better. It's going to, it's going to continue to get worse in, in years to come. So I think you know, and what I used to tell people, you know, when I was having the debate about tort reform and and what was really driving costs for for Florida, you know, my comment was, yeah, we're always going to have hurricanes. I mean, we're we're a gigantic peninsula that sticks out into the Gulf of Mexico and the Atlantic Ocean. We're we're going to get hit by hurricanes. That's going to be something that's a feature of our market forever. And those storms appear to be getting much stronger. And the flooding and the sea surge is becoming a lot worse as well. And that's where that protection gap I mentioned earlier really becomes very, very relevant. Florida's taken some steps that I think other states could look to and say, hey, maybe we should give that a shot. And one of them is the My Safe Florida Home Program. And that's a program that we, re- it's been around for a while, but we refunded it during one of our special legislative sessions. And it offers a variety of different incentives to Floridians to undertake resiliency measures on their homes and provides you know, tax incentives and, and, and other things. Um, and then insurance companies, there's an expectation that, you know, they'll consider those efforts in um, their their premium rates. But the real the real goal is not necessarily to lower premiums. The real goal is more of a long play, which is if we make our communities more resilient, then in the long run, we'll reduce our cat losses. And in the long run, we'll reduce our need for these kinds of extraordinary rate increases. So the My Safe Florida Home Program, I think, is going to be to be really, really valuable going forward. We also have the Florida Commission on Hurricane Loss Projection Methodology. So that's a that's a bit of a mouthful. But any insurance company that's using a hurricane model to project their losses has to get that approved by this commission. Um, and I know that the modelers are putting a lot of uh, research into how are these storms increasing in frequency and severity? So I certainly think there's steps that Florida's taking um, to protect ourselves against the fact that we're going to continue to have frequent and severe hurricanes and, and, and floodings. And so, you know, they're still going to be disruptive. They're still going to be devastating. 
Um, but I think our track record shows that, you know, we're, we're, we're able to bounce back from those. And uh, if, if any, any of our listeners are interested in uh, climate modeling, we did an episode with Karen Clark about 18 months ago, which was a you know, superb episode. So uh, if you want to know more about climate modeling, give that episode a listen. So you, you touched upon tort reform kind of two or three times as, as, as one of the kind of the various levers of, ha- of how you can respond to the situation. So talk us through tort reform. Sure. So Florida has long had a statute that we call the one-way attorney fee statute. And so it's really, what it basically says is that if I, the consumer, sue my insurance company and I win, then the insurance company has to pay my attorney fees. So um, it sounds great, but we really, really saw that statute be abused. And the unfortunate part about it is that it was abused um, by a very small number of people. So, you know, I tend to say, well, the plaintiff's bar is very influential and trial attorneys are, are, are causing issues here. And, and it's probably a, a too broad of a characterization because really you can look at maybe 10 or 15 law firms in the state that were really abusing this and everyone else seemed to be doing things the way that they should have been. But we saw a significant amount of attorney solicitation we saw just a significant amount of lawsuits filed by the same attorneys. I think somebody told me that one attorney filed 3,000 lawsuits over the course of two years. And so, you know, that's, I can't do the math on the fly, but that's got to be like four lawsuits a day, including holidays and weekends. And so we're looking at that going, this really can't be, you know, accurate, right? And Citizens Property Insurance Corporation, which is our residual market, they were getting sued on claims that they hadn't even received yet. So they hadn't even had the opportunity to drop the ball. And so we were looking at it going, how do you get sued on something that you haven't even had the chance to mess up yet? So, you know, we, we looked at that and we found evidence that suggested that what would commonly happen is that you would see, you know, a variety of different players in the market, such as, you know, water remediation companies, roofers would partner with an attorney, they would go into a claim. And you know, most of the time, the homeowner doesn't really know any better. If you have a roof leak or if you have a plumbing leak, you call a professional and they come out. And when they tell you, hey, I have to remodel your entire kitchen or I have to replace your entire roof, you know, most homeowners are going to go, oh, I didn't think it was that bad, but you're the expert, not me. So go ahead and do the work that you need to do. So what ends up happening is they make this astronomical proposal to the insurance company. And the insurance company looks at it and says, there's just no way. And so they offer a lesser amount. And what we discovered is that winning a lawsuit under the one-way attorney fee statute only requires you to get one penny more from the insurance company than what they originally offered. Wow. And then you get all yeah. the attorney fee um, covered. So, you know, some of the things that, that we did is, you know, how do we disincentivize this type of abuse. And we, we tried a, a variety of different things. We looked at ways to say, well, what if we put in a threshold? What if you had to get over 50% of your fees and things of that nature? And I think we ended up clarifying um, the one-way attorney fee statute in a way that I think is going to have an impact. It's now only available in very select um, circumstances. And so it's unfortunate because I think there's a lot of consumers out there that could have benefited from that statute, but the amount of abuse was just causing too much long-term harm to, to everybody. So we've already seen a variety of different positive impacts. And I think it's a little bit early 
to tell just how successful that effort has been. And, and I was because that was going to be my next question. And, and I guess also, how would you measure success? Is 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 success measured in uh, premiums coming down, or, or how would you measure success? When I was serving as the commissioner and advocating for these reforms, I was very careful not to overpromise anything on the rate front because. The reality of a lot of these reforms is that they're really long plays. And, you know, we've got experience in our state. If you look back to 2006, seven ish, we did some insurance reforms. And the focus during those reforms was let's lower rates for consumers. And I think a lot of people skipped over the part where the best way to lower rates is to stabilize our marketplace. So we had a relatively unstable market after the 04 and 05 storm seasons. We skipped ahead to policies that were designed to lower rates for consumers. And what we ended up doing was creating a lot of insolvencies in the 07, 08 timeframe that, that were probably a result of a lot of these, um, a lot of these issues, a lot of these reforms. So what I advocated, you know, it was a tough position to be in, truly, because most of the members of the legislature rightfully were pressing on well, how do we lower insurance rates? And, and my response was, we have to stabilize the marketplace first. And so we have to put in reforms that eliminate these adverse reserve developments that we're seeing on cat losses and, and a host of other issues first before we can get to rate stabilization. So I, I'm looking at you know, metrics like how many new companies have come into the marketplace to open up their operations. And we've seen a handful already. I'm looking at you know, Hurricane Ian and Hurricane Adalia, what does the reserve development look like on those two storms? Um, it is upcoming reinsurance renewal process. How much capacity is being committed to the state? How low in the reinsurance towers is that capacity being um, um, committed? Those are the types of things that are in the long run going to stabilize our marketplace and, and hopefully stabilize um, the rate environment as well. And uh, tell us a little bit about your current role um, at Southern Group. I believe it involves lobbying, but who do you lobby and for whom do you lobby? So historically, the Southern Group has lobbied the Florida legislature and the Florida executive branch for a variety of different industries. And we have a couple of insurance people that are here that do that kind of that kind of work. And that's a little bit of where I come in. I'm, I'm doing some lobbying, but I would say that I'm probably doing more what I've characterized regulatory consulting. And so when I was the insurance commissioner, I had the opportunity to serve as the NEIC president. For your listeners, it's the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, and all 56 insurance commissioners are um, members. And you might have some listeners doing the math and saying, I thought there were only 50 U.S. states. I was going to say 56. How does that work? <laughs> so we have the 50 U.S. states, but we also have six territories. Fun parlor game is to see if you can name them all, but it's... um. D.C., Puerto Rico, the U.S. Virgin Islands, Guam, the Northern Mariana Islands, um, and the American Samoa. So all six of the territories have an appointed or elected insurance commissioner that are also members. But I, I got a significant amount of experience with how that the NEIC is essentially a standard-setting body. And so one of the things that I bring to the table for clients of the Southern Group is an ability to help them navigate that standard-setting process. And so... I've been providing my consultation to a lot of them about 
you know, if you have input on some of these things, here, here's the best way to approach that. Here's a strategy that you should consider. And in a lot of cases, actually reaching out to individual insurance regulators and, 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 and you could call it lobbying for um, the viewpoints of um, the insurance space. So it's really more of the, of the regulatory side, less on the legislative side or executive branch side, but really more, you know, navigating the intricacies and the complexities of the, of the regulatory landscape, both in the U.S. and abroad. And what about the future for Florida? Um, one of our episodes a few months ago was with uh, Professor Ivan Haig, and he was talking about rising sea levels. And Miami was mentioned in particular as, as a city that is, is at risk. And alongside sea level rises, hurricanes are predicted to become more hazardous, not necessarily more numerous, as I understand it, but more intense. And kind of that's confirmed by the, you know, the, the Florida Climate Center. So isn't it a case that things are going to get worse in Florida? And if so, is there a point at which insurance simply can't take the risk in Florida? So, you know, I always think of this question as a lot more broad than just an insurance question. And I think Florida is certainly going to have challenges, but I, I don't necessarily think that means that things have to get worse first. I think, you know, we've, the legislature under Speaker Chris Rouse, you know, commissioned a study from one of the actual oil firms where he said, you know, broadly, you know, putting specific issues like insurance aside, what are the significant risks that Florida needs to be thinking about? And what do we need to do now to prepare for those types of risks? And I think it's a good example of where Florida looks at the things that are facing it and its population and are already having the conversations about what are the types of things that we need to be thinking about going forward to, to minimize the impact of these risks. So the sea level rise in places like Miami and, and Tampa, you know, are, are, are on the list of things to be considered. So I think collectively as a state, you know, the insurance industry included, we need to be thinking about these types of challenges facing our state and considering how do we mitigate those now? How do we make sure that we're not leaving those challenges up to our children and our, and our grandchildren so that they don't have to worry about these types of things. And they can think about the challenges that their children and their grandchildren are going to have to face in, in Florida. So my final question, David, is you've had a successful career in insurance and insurance regulation. Is it a profession that you would recommend to others and, and why? Absolutely. I would recommend this and I do recommend this. And one of my favorite things to do when I was insurance commissioner is I would have the opportunity to go to some of the local universities and talk to college classrooms and, and really kind of tell um, the insurance industry. I, as I mentioned at the, at the beginning of the podcast, I fell into it on accident and I haven't looked back. There's never been a moment where I've thought that I regret walking into that particular insurance agency to change my insurance policies. It's just a fascinating market. And, and what I tell people is that there's something in the insurance industry for everyone. You don't have to be an accountant. You don't have to be an actuary. You don't have to be a lawyer. Those things help, but we've got roles for communications professionals. We've got roles for government affairs professionals. We've got roles for, for just about everybody. I had an employee at the office once who was one of our best regulators, and I think her background was art history. So we, we literally have a space for, for everybody. And I always tell people the insurance industry is a great place to work, but, but don't sleep on the regulatory side of it. That exposes you to quite a bit of the operations and, and, and the machinations in the insurance marketplace. And I'm, I'm really quite happy that I had the regulatory experience that I did. It's, it's really 
added a, a, a perspective to my view of the insurance industry that I think is incredible. So if anybody's looking to have a little bit of civil service on their resume, I'd recommend some insurance regulatory work. I found it to be fascinating. Thank you, David. That was wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. RPC Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you'll also love our other RPC podcasts, Taxing Matters, Money Covered and The Work Couch. Thank you once again for listening and I hope you have a great day. 